Well, hello and welcome to Inexos Access All Areas. My name is B, and I will be co-hosting this series of podcasts with my Inexos nerd Hayden Murdoch. We will be delving deep with you all to explore everything there is to know about this iconic band of brothers in excess, sharing music, tours, videos, albums, and oh, so much more. Hello, everybody. It's Inexos Access All Areas today with my special guest he wants to say a big merry christmas everybody it's nick egan hey mate how are you i'm good b how are you i'm good i'm good i hope we can get this uh videoed <laughs> for everybody yeah. it's taken us a few takes but it's going to be a bit of fun today isn't it yeah it's gonna be a bit of fun i'm stepping in for for hayden just for this week um he has another big job, and in case you didn't know, he's actually Santa Claus, so he's up at the North Pole <laughs> at the moment, uh, getting everyone's gifts ready. So everyone better be better be nice on this show, because if you're naughty, you're going to get cold. Uh, so uh, so he's kept his seat nice and warm for me, and it is really warm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've got big shoes to fill. I guess the first thing I was going to ask you, as tradition goes, how's your NXS week been, B? Oh, thank you, Nick. It's been um, pretty good. Um, nothing too much. Um, I've had lots of um, things going on, and we'll tell you more about those as the show goes through. But nothing too big. Just getting ready for Christmas and getting ready yeah. to see you. This is pretty exciting seeing you. What have you been up to? Oh, I've been busy doing so. I'm doing this line of clothing. Oh. Uh, that's custom with safety pins and designs, and I've actually been selling a lot of those and uh, and some some of my artwork, which I've done really well at. I was at an exhibition in Glasgow, uh, so I kept busy, you know. Yeah. And for this time of year, it's good to have things to do. Yeah. And it's cold, you know. And of course, you're in the middle of summer there, and it's the middle of winter here. Cold. It's cold here, and then I'm going to the Midwest for Christmas, my mother-in-law's, and that's like. Well, you don't do Fahrenheit. We still do Fahrenheit here. It's like 12 degrees or something, which is minus zero. Yeah. So it's going to be cold. Yeah, that's why I've got my big jumper on. You've got your big jumper and on. My Sa- and my Santa hat. Yes, yeah. for those that can't see us, um, Nick's wearing his Santa hat, and I've got my uh, my wings on, and I've actually bought my wand to stop uh, Nick just in case he goes over the board <laughs> because I've got a feeling yeah. you might at some point. So I do. I have the power yes. of editing, no, don't I? <laughs> right. So yes, we, you, do. you do. So we had the pleasure of um, a few weeks ago. Oh no, it was only last week actually, wasn't it? Having Danny. Yeah. Um, come on and have an interview with us so um, we're going to put that into two parts and we're going to talk about that later on in the show how did you feel about it it was quite cool wasn't it well it was interesting and the just to introduce Danny before you do you know before we play the interview I did I came to know about him because when I was in um, the south of France Michael picked me up from the airport he had a Mercedes Jeep and no roof and we got in it and he put this music on and it was black grape that became the anthem to that summer that I spent down. We played it everywhere we went, full volume, driving around. It's great. Michael's hair all blowing in the wind. And he was like grooving out. And it really it stuck with me as a, as a great memory of being with Michael, especially now I've just seen his houses up for sale because yeah. that was all, all during that period in the summer. It's beautiful down there. Mm. And then uh, he told me, I love this guy, Danny Sabre. He produced that record. And I didn't know at that point that they were going to work together, but met Danny through um, Dave Thomas, who used to work with a band who was trying to put together a documentary and through Channel 7 in Australia. 
And Dave wanted me to meet Danny. And so I did. You know, I, I did some of the interviews. I wasn't I wasn't particularly enamoured by that documentary. It wasn't quite how they said it was going to be. But it did have its moments. And, and it was really because Danny was still working on some of the material that he'd done with Michael. And he really was looking to reinvent Michael because it felt like the whole Michael in accessing is stagnated to a degree. And there was all this new possible new material that fans would love to hear. So he's been working really hard and there's about four or five tracks no one's ever heard before, which are great. And he's giving it contemporary feel. He's finding other vocalists to do duets with Michael. So it's a very exciting project. So I realized it would be a good thing perhaps to have him come on the show and he'll explain a little bit as you'll see in our interview. Um, but yeah, it was good. I was in the desert at the time and, um, it was kind of a bit noisy out there, but Danny, yeah, he's a fascinating character. Yeah, he think? is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very fascinating. Um, yeah, I got to um, ask a few questions that have uh, been burning for me as well. So, yeah, he's a very good guy, isn't he? Very cool, very calm. I liked him. Yeah. I liked him. I was expecting him to be a bit crazy, but he wasn't. That was good. He can be crazy. He can be crazy. But any, and yeah, Danny, Sabre, in case anyone doesn't know, has pretty much worked with everyone there is from Madonna to the Rolling Stones to U2, uh, Black Grape. He's worked, to, he's done a lot of remixes for, for bands. He's, He's really well known for his remixes and and him and Michael really bonded. And I think Danny was the last, well, Danny was the last person to be in the studio with Michael and he really got Michael's sensibility. And I knew that from Michael because I knew having been with Michael when he was doing his solo record, he went through Tim Simonon and a few different producers and he, and it, well, he just didn't find it wasn't biting him. And then Danny got him in that kind of contemporary sense, you know, like, like that rock dance kind of techno thing and and brought some great performances out of Michael. Yeah, great album. Patrons that um, look after the show with um, with their monetary contributions, and uh, you've done a nice little clip for them this week. Well, yes, I wanted to sort of in in importance of this time of year, the, the Christmas and the gift of giving and the gift of receiving, and for what you and Hayden have done over the past years is been giving a great service and at your own expense, and it and it costs you a lot of time, precious time of your own, away from your family. I felt like it wasn't take much for people to get a, the benefits of what you get as being a patron, as explained on the little commercial I did. And it doesn't even have to be, it can be a gift for somebody else. It could be a gift to yourself. It could be a gift to your kids. It could be a gift to your neighbor. But I think anyone that is a really true and excess fan should donate to this show because it's the only really true and excess podcast that really matters. It's the only contemporary podcast that really has up-to-date uh, analysis and news and also has really really special guests that are, are or have been intimate with the band in one way or another either musically or via friendships or whatever it is and you're not going to get this kind of um a podcast and any and anywhere else so those of you who are listening that haven't signed up to be a patron you should really consider it because it's worth it because it keeps the show on the air longer and it also gives the show access to be able to get even more special guests on 
Oh, thank you, Nick. That's really kind of you to say all of that. Yeah, um, it is a labour of love. We <laughs> don't get any money from this. And uh, yeah, it would be really kind of you if you uh, could find um, a few uh, pennies a month. It would only cost you $5 a month. Um, I'm sure the bargain. that, yeah, <laughs> it would be well, nice. You also, get these be- you also get these behind the scenes. So those of you who are patrons are probably going to be able to see me doing this interview with <laughs> Bridget. No, um, but but you see, you get that extra thing where you get to see extra things and and there's special competitions and I just think it's a great it's a great of, of all the bands and I've done quite a few podcasts with bands that I've worked with in the past this by far is the most in tune with with the band and and not just the band from the past because we all love that but also the band and what each band members doing for the future and the contemporary things it really keeps an excess in the in the public side so it's a great job I'd like to say hello to everybody outside on the highway let's all say hello to everybody outside it's about 10,000 people at least hello well, hello to our honorary members, Tim Ferris, Nick Egan, Mark Opitz, Richard Simpkins, Cameron Adams, Mary Woods, Darren Jones and Paul Jolie. Our patrons, Carmen, Laurie, Carrie-Anne, Danielle, Sarah Mark and Sarah Camia, Dr. Jim, Katie, Lisa Mack, Anne-Marie, Susan P, Susan B, Foxy, Pedro, Mandy, Matt, Linda, Yvonne. Caroline, Amanda H, Amanda V, David, Tracy, Paul Bridges, Paul Buckley, Sandrine, Ella, Ryder, Tony, Erica, Abigail, Martin, Val, Jim, Matey, Kelly, Jackie, Sean, Sheila, Shannon, Helen, Brett, Suzanne, Laurel, Bard, Genevieve, Shelby, Manny, Laurie, Jill, Yari, Laos, Heidi, Paula, Lisa Urban, Angie, Nancy, Scott, Anthea, Maria, Nicole, Tracy, Darren, Vernon, Jamie, Diana, Stefan, Andrew, Georgie, Stephen, Keisha, Mark, Vern, Shane and Lachlan. And our special mentions are to Sue D, Joe Robbins, John A. Vink, Michael Spriggs, Glenn Davis, Paul Boozy and Jay Finlayson. Thank you and welcome to the podcast. That was Roy Wizard, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day, which is my favourite all-time Christmas song, amongst many great Christmas songs in that era. era. It was really uplifting, and the kids singing at the end, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. It's a really wonderfully positive, upbeat. Go to YouTube and you look at the Top of the Pops performance on it. It's great because they've used these school kids in a, from in and around Birmingham, and they and Roy Wood was like, he looked like a, he looked like a wizard, he had a long beard, and his kids look kind of freaked out looking at him because some, were, some <laughs> of them were about five or six years old. So that's my Christmas number one. And the Christmas dedication, even though they're not Christmas records, I wanted to give everybody my top 10 Michael Hutchins in excess songs of all oh, time. For, for okay. my, for my list. Cool. All right. Well, give me the list then. Pass me the yeah. list this way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You got it? Got okay. it. Okay. This oh, way. Oh, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Oh, Here it, it is. It? Here that way, yeah, yeah, he's got this. He's got it. <laughs> All right, then. So, 
number 10 we'll go in from number 10 upwards okay so your first choice oh this is a this is a really cool song this is a really happy song isn't it good times by in excess and jimmy barnes everybody shame Well, it was a lot of things come to mind in this. It reminds me of the first time I met Michael. I was watching some videos at his place when I was staying with him, and that one came on, and and I, and I just loved the energy of it. And Michael yeah. looked happy. <laughs> that was the quintessential Michael Hutchins at the peak of his pop star looks before mm-hmm. before Kit came out. But but he looked great. His clothes were great. His hair was great. His the energy's great. They're having fun in the studio, and and it was kind of like the Australian version of uh, David Bowie and and Freddie Mercury, you know, mm. doing their song, the rock version of it. And and they're both their voices are incredible on that. And it was done at Rhinoceros Studios. The whole thing was at when I went to Rhinoceros Studios the next day after I seen the video that that Michael showed me, and it, it made me connect with the studio straight away because. It was such fun, and John was having fun. They were all, everyone was having fun, and they really genuinely looked like they were mates, you know, mm. which which doesn't always happen when people do get together and do a song together. I thought it was great, and and every time I hear it, I always turn up the volume on it. It's just, and it was ended up being used in a movie, wasn't it? Um, I forgot the name of the movie it was the in. The vampire now, but it was movie, the, Lost Boys. Yeah, the vampire movie. And do you know that Timmy wasn't there in the video? Oh no, I didn't. Yeah, no. he was got, he'd gone fishing. <laughs> oh, was he? So he <laughs> funny. Well, he didn't notice it because because everyone it, it was all mixed up of all yeah from Jimmy Barnes around. Band, yeah Jimmy Barnes and, and these were the two most iconic Australian singers singing together and yeah and I thought they did it in such an unpretentious way and and it always reminds me of that first time I went down to stay with Michael whenever I hear that song I get a sort of sentimental feeling in, in my heart over it. Oh, okay. Well, number nine. What do you think of it? Oh, me? What's your view on it? Oh, well, we've, we've played this a few times. So what if, maybe you've not heard my view on it. Yeah, a bit like you. Um, it was um, made for um, the Australian Made Concerts. And right. um, the, the song was chosen by Marco Pitts, which was um, mm-hmm. an absolute like thrill um, to hear them sing it. Because like you say, it's such an uplifting song and it just um, really shows their voices and how they're, it's not yeah. like a competition. They're very much in sync, aren't no, they? Yeah, exactly. Beautiful, I agree. Beautiful. But the video is very, very, 
very much fun. I really enjoy it. And uh, yeah. it's one that really lifts the spirit. And wasn't the original done, but it was an Australian band did the original, wasn't it? Yes. Now you're going to test yeah. me, aren't you? Um, yeah, I, I don't know who it was. And we need Hayden here for that. <laughs> yeah, we need Hayden. Hayden, we're missing you already, but he's very busy, isn't he? Flying around yeah, the world. Yeah, with his, <laughs> all his elves, yeah. <laughs> okay, now um, the next song is Way of the World by Max Q. There's a lot that, that goes into that. I was very much involved with the Max Q project and and Michael stepping out of the in excess uh, glow into a territory that wasn't used to being by himself. You know, I was there, um, Ollie was there, Brett was there when uh, when a lot of this was being made. Um, and I remember being in the studios in New York when he was remixing some of the stuff sometimes with Todd Terry. But this, to me, is one of Michael's best vocals. It is so... It's so strong and you feel everything he's singing in it. And he told me that he actually sang it in the mixing room. He took a mic. And the normal thing would be go into a, um, a booth, a sound booth with a microphone so you don't get any bleeding of sound. But Michael decided to go into the mix, into the room, the main room, with a microphone, with a lead, and he ran around the room singing it to the people sitting in the room. And it just has that wonderful energy. I thought it was a great song. Another song that I still think to this day stands the test of time and really is one of Michael's great performances. And what's your opinion on that? Oh, me? Well, I do like it. It's not my favourite off the album. I must admit, I do like the whole album. Um, sometimes oh, it sticks out for me. Um, but the um, the one that I can never say, because it's German, I think, is Ott van Rott. Um, oh, yeah, I remember. I love, 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 yeah. love that song. Well, the whole album is a great album and, mm. and sort of a, and a sort of a mini masterpiece that is like, yes, yeah, become, become almost like a cult record. And, and, you know, and, and as, as, as I've said on the show in the past, there was no slur on in excess. I don't think Michael no. felt that, that he wanted to express himself. Once you've been yes. with five people all your life, sometimes you just want to break from it and try and do something else. And, and it, I think it was taken the wrong way by, management at the time but um i think it's one of michael's great great um achievements it is it is i mean the band went off and did their own little things as well or big things yeah. as well um while we're we're talking about max q i don't know if you know aware of this nick but uh, um ollie is very sick at the moment he's, I heard. he's got parkinson's yeah. yes so I know. There is a charity fund um, raiser for him, so we will put that into the link as well. If anybody, so I spoke to a lot, I spoke to Ollie a couple of years ago, and he told me he was having medical issues. I didn't realize mm. it was to the to the problem it was, and then then suddenly he stopped. He went off the radar and and um, stopped returning calls and everything. So I was concerned, 
yeah. to find out. But I understand Richard Lowenstein has started a, a fundraiser for him. Yeah, him and some other people. So, yes, our heart goes out to you, Ollie. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, yeah. We uh, send all our love. Okay, yeah. number eight, Kiss the Dirt. Well, there's a few things about it. I think all, all feelings aside, NXS videos up till that point have been really kind of like the home movies and and, um, and were kind of fun, kind of home movies from the hip. But this one was like cinematic. It portrayed the Australian outback and it, the, the lenses were were like almost like anamorphic lenses. And and I thought that's what NXS should be. That, that, that from that thing, I thought that's what, what how NXS should come across to the rest of the world. They look, even though they're Australian, and Michael with his RM William boots on it, which I love those boots because <laughs> he's kicking us dirt, dust in it. I just think it's a, a masterpiece. I understand also that Chris Murphy didn't like that video very much. So um, we, we, Chris and I had opposite tastes about a lot of things. But there was an Australian director whose name has slipped my mind that did it. I just think I just think the camera movements are beautiful. And it was, like I said, a cinematic. It was in excess mm. to me. First cinematic, we are a big band video. Mm. I love the melody of it. I love the I love the sentiment of it. And it's it's just a beautifully written song. The melody's great on it. So so I I love that. Yes, I, I I totally agree. I mean, speaking to um, a lot of fans that are from America, when they saw this and saw the the imagery of uh, Australia, yeah. you know, it was just all yeah. um, and, and very sexy, very very sexy. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, T- Tim's got his shirt off at one point, and you feel the heat, don't you? you yeah, you heat. do. And Michael with his black t shirt, his tight black t shirt, yeah. and his jeans and on, and his arm with yeah, yeah, and it, the yeah. The belt was great. The belt mm. was great, and everything about it to me—it was simplicity. It Clever. could have been, in fact, when I think about it, but it could have been actually an influence on me for the kit cover because mm. it had those cropped-off shots. And I think it could be now when I think back, and those cropped-off shots and the individual shots put together, yeah. and that cinematic thing—it definitely probably had some influence on me okay. when I came down to doing mm. it. Yeah, I just realised that. That's that's a cool that's a cool thing that he's just uh, clicked yeah. with you. How many years later? <laughs> I know, I know. It's funny because I just well because you got Michael's feet. I realize you got that cropped off shot of Michael's feet, mm. and I've got him on the skateboard up there. Yeah, great, a beautiful. One of NXS beautiful ballads, really. Yeah, I know the sowing the seeds of lust to love yeah, all those little things that he puts in there. Okay, yeah, so number seven, beautiful girl.
wrote the whole of this song and I've got to say that's a testament to what a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant songwriter he is. And and it's just, I mean, it's a beautiful girl, it's a beautiful song, but more importantly, it, it reminds me of my daughter Ava when she was born. And, oh. and whenever I listen to that track, it reminds me of her and she's my beautiful girl. And and I think the sentiment that, that comes across in that video, because and the video that Mark Pellington did was a great video too, because it was about women butchering themselves up for beauty and making themselves, you know, that we should love women for what they are and not for what, what magazines make them to be. So I thought everything about that song mm. is, is, a, is a wonderful song, but in particular because it reminds me of my daughter. Yes, because of the um, the little um, organ that they play or the keyboards that they play, it's got yeah. like a childish feel to it, hasn't yeah. it? Like it reminds yeah. me of like um, like a jewellery box sort of um Yeah, like as yeah, well. Yeah, like it. Yeah, like yeah. a wind-up thing. Yeah. And, and, and it appeals in just a beautiful girl sentiment. I think, you know, it shows that Andrew is, is a is a quite an, a deeply emotional guy within, you know, outside of this side that we tend to see of him sometimes. Mm. He's he's quite, a, he's quite a soppy guy, really. <laughs> and, and, and I think that that is yeah, beautifully, beautifully written. And, and again, it's the simplicity of it. I think NHS brought a lot of simplicity. It's a very simple... Melody, it's a very simple video, and Michael's vocals are great on it. And mm. yes, it's definitely an NX song, an excess song I, I like to play. Well, that was number seven. Now, number six is very mm. iconic. This is this tune has been played and, and reproduced by many, many bands since, and it's Don't Change. Oh, and how many bands have done it? I didn't even oh, know that. Loads, well, loads and loads. Well, the, the, the special memory of that song for me was that when I met the band in New York and I seen them at Madison Square Garden, and Michael said to me, I was actually going to be in LA the same time as them because I was then working on a psychedelic first record cover, Richard Butler. And Richard Butler was, I was meeting Richard Butler, and I said to Michael, Oh, I'll be in LA when you're playing. And he goes, Oh, well, you have to come to the show. And I remember. And now I live in LA. I didn't live in LA at the time. It was at the Greek Theatre, and I was late getting there. And I could hear the song echoing down the canyon. Don't change. I mean, the thing about me with Excess, I was a late discoverer of the band. So I got into them, listen like thieves. And so gradually, I, I got this 
treasure tro trove of great music that I'd never heard before. So I was kind of overwhelmed with it and, and to a degree because there were so many great songs. That, and I could put, you know, like The Swing and, and um, Shabu Shaba and all these records that I'd never heard of before. Mm -hmm. Suddenly I, I got this thing about wanting to hear all the records. And Don't Change just was such a bittersweet song. Also, it's my wife's favourite NXS song. She oh. loves it. Anytime that comes on the radio, she always wants to turn it up. And it, it meant a lot to her when she was at college because NXS were a big band in America. And, and she she loved them. But that song in particular, Don't Change, was, was important to her as well. Mm -hmm. It is. It's an important lyric, isn't it? Don't change for yeah. you and don't change for yeah. me. Love it. Love yeah. it. Okay. Moving on up to, we're halfway already, by the way. Oh, um, and Number five. What do you need? Again, this is this is a, a thing that is personal to me, as I was just explaining that. I didn't really know who NXS were. They were the band with the funny name Inkses. I didn't really know much about them. And I was living in New York at the time, and all the music at that point was kind of Madonna, like hip-hop, yeah, rap music. And and suddenly, I, 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 every time I turned on the radio, there was this rock kind of like riff that was going on, but it had a dance beat to it. And I just thought, that is a, an epic record. And and I and again to this day that guitar the guitar riff that Tim lays down is brilliant. I was with a good friend of mine, Ali Newling, and we were walking along in, in, near Broadway, and I heard the record come out. I said, "You know, what? I love that record." And she said, "Oh, that's my friend Michael." All came together really quickly. I think I've told this story before, but basically, she said, "That's my friend Michael. He's going to be playing here at Madison Square Garden. You should come and see him play because you and he would get on." great together and that's what that's how it all began really from that it's a great song again and my whole thing of wondering was how come i've never heard of this band before how come yeah. i don't know more about this band yeah a lot of that was because i lived in england and they weren't as popular in england they were popular but not as popular as they were say in america mm. but that song really sort of really emphasized their dance rock mm -hmm. element of the band you know so you go from you go from Falling down the mountain, kiss the dirt to what you need. So you got a, a beautiful melodic ballad to this rocking, rocking out kind of record, and I think yeah. that showed their yeah. their um their their range of of musical taste. So yeah, that's a really important um record as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's quite important to me. It's my first song that I ever heard, really, of In Excesses. Um, and, and we've we've spoken about well in quite in depth about this song that it's got lots of space as well. You know, it's yes, it one has. of those songs that's got lots of beat, but you can hear everything coming in. Yeah, you know, it's got all of those beautiful like hooks that hook you right in. It was the one that I first bought as well. 
Yeah, and it was Chris Thomas's first as the album he produced before Kick, and I think that shows Chris's talent of making that rock. And you're absolutely right about the space as it continued on to the to the um, Kick album, but that really t- like tough guitar sound, but with that kind of space within it. And I think that, that it was a, it was a brilliant job. And again, it was it was important because it brought me into the NXS. Not only just as I think it's a great song for NXS, I think it's a great song anyway, regardless of NXS. And it brought me into you know my relationship with the band and in particular Michael. Cool. Okay, number four. Just a man. Moving into the last album. That was another song that I didn't listen to till later for some reason. And one day, oh, I, I know where I heard it first. I was watching that show, that live show they did in Germany. That that little, oh, well, I don't yeah. know if you've seen it. It's on, it's on, it's on Apple TV, and it's a show they do. And I heard that, and I knew Michael's family. I knew I met his dad. I knew I met his mum. I met Tina, obviously, and Rhett, obviously. And so I knew the family. So, so. It was such a personal song to to his family, and such a each individual member he reached out to. It was so beautifully put and so tender to each one of them. And again, the melody is is great. And then almost the 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 way he starts to shout towards the end, you know, it's like gets really animated in it. It, it shows how passionate he was. Mm-hmm. You know, we. Mm-hmm. We can't choose our family and whether we we don't always like our family and sometimes we're, we're just stuck with them but we stick by them whatever and mm-hmm. and um and i think that that epitomized everything and everyone you know from the little i know i know Rhett the most but the little i knew of of, of, of his dad and his mum and then tina later i thought it just is beautifully put for them and they should, must feel very lucky yes yeah uh, to, to have such a great song that they're in and it's a great song again. Yeah, it's like a letter to them, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on to number three, Slide Away. Yeah, again, um, it's poignant because 
I don't know, I just want to throw the way and come alive again. I just think, was, yeah, time so... Oof. Uh, yeah, it's heavy, it was, actually, it was like, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, but but you've got, again, you know, you've got him doing a duet with Jimmy Barnes. So, you know, it's great. But you've got him doing a duet with Bono, the other great rock ballad, balladeer. And and the two of them on that song, and, and you can feel Bono's compassion in that lyric. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you can feel Michael's... I think Michael's optimism about things, which is ironic to say, but um, it felt like he was trying to redo everything himself. and change. Yeah, mm. and and I think, but the arrangement of it is 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 beautiful, and it's one of those songs that I can't, you know, I, I, I when I listened to it once, I have to listen to it four times in a row, and you yeah. know, it was the name, it was the name of the movie we were going to make, and and um, side away, uh, because we felt that really said everything about what had happened with Michael and, um, you know, where he is somewhere in these heavens, you know. So mm-hmm. it it has a very emotional very, attachment, that song. Very emotional. It's sad, but like you say, it's uplifting. It's up, it is optimistic in a way, but it's sad yeah. to know the reality. Yeah. So I have to move yeah. on because it does make me sad. But the, next, the next song you, you were found only recently and you know, over the last couple of years um you, you must have heard it but i think it's more relevant to you now and that is love is what i say Yeah, I did, and that's that partly because of you. Yeah. It reminds me. It reminds me of Bridget that song, uh, but it is a beautiful um, because you know this is when we first met, and for some reason I had all of the swing album, but that was the only one that was missing off it. And then when I heard it, I thought, God, well, I missed out on it. And and yeah, it came recently, and I think it's just a great that, that whole album. And I know you had Nick Lawney on recently. Nick is a great guy, anyway, yeah. um, and he's got a unique sound. I think that is. NXS's most unique sounding album, really, out of everything. It's even more than the Kick album. I think that's got a really specific sound to it that is uniquely NXS. And yeah. um, mm. and he captured that. And again, it's like a, a beautiful melody. And it, Michael Michael and Andrew's songwriting, when he came to ballads and writing slower songs, melody, sense of melody was just beautiful. You know, again, he's lyric. It's, it's true. It's like he's a, definitely a poet. It's the way he put words together, especially on ballads was really yeah wonderful so i love that song it's funny that you should put that into your list because we've just hayden and i have just come off and interviewing gary beers and that was a song that he mentioned a a bit bit that you know he wished that they'd played it more often because it was one of his favorites too and the and the swing album is a very big favorite of his as well just because he was allowed to be a songwriter on that album as well and the fact that you know there is a lot of quirkiness and it was more that was them before someone polished them up ready for kick and made them into the mainstream so yeah i'm I'm glad you put that one in there 
Yeah, and I think that I think again, Nick Lorne. They've had some great. They've worked some great producers. I mean, you can't yes. Marco Pitts, Nick Nick Lorne, mm. uh, Chris Thomas, and then Danny Klein, Danny Danny um, Danny Sable with Michael. So mm. they've been involved with some really, and and you know, um, um, uh, now Rogers got involved with them remixing yeah. stuff. So they've worked some some really really great people. And I, I I just think there's something about the what Nick captured on that record to be like a cozy it's like a cozy record it's a love record and and that's got um that's got original sin on it which is again is a brilliant lyric from michael yeah. but lo- yeah love is what i say is a is is um a standout for me on on what is a great album okay yeah. and then last one number one need you tonight Not only my top ten favorite in excess records, but my favorite record of all time, oh, including really? everyone. Wow, yeah, including everyone. And the reason being was I was in the studio when they were doing that, and when I heard it, I thought I didn't know whether I liked it or not because it was so radically different from everything else. It was so minimalistic, and and Michael's vocal was in it was so great, and and but Andrew's little guitar pieces that he, he added to it. And to this day, and it was the most forward-thinking record I think NXS had done because it was ahead of so ahead of its time when Kit came out. Yeah. In terms of its production, in terms of its arrangement, and I know it was a last-minute put together by Andrew and, and Michael, and and um, even down to the beat, the drum beat, with the way it comes into and the click on it that, that John does on the on the rim of the drums, mm. it's just it's perfection. It's, to me, it's perfection as a song. Yeah, I don't think you can get a, a better song than that. You don't get and tired it, of it, do you? You don't get tired of it, and it stands up the test of time. I still think you can listen to it today, and it sounds just as great and as original and as fresh as it did back when it came out. And I can't believe now, 1987. That's like how many years ago? Thirty oh, odd years ago. ago. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's just like it's crazy. It's that much time has gone by, but yeah, but still fresh. That's that. That's a classic song for you, isn't it? Well, it's, like I say, it's, it's not only my favorite in excess song, but it's probably my favorite song of all time. But I've got I've got two ways of seeing that as as a person that appreciates music. I love it as a song. It could have been anyone did it, but also the fact that I worked with that. I was working with a band at that time, and I know. All the, all the dynamics and I got to know Michael and it just is so to me it's a perfect storm really all brought together so there's I, I don't think that, that will never be knocked off my top 10 you have to be a tough one a, a brilliant song to really knock it off my top I mean I've got other like songs like I like um, Let It Be by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones Sympathy for the Devil are up there too but but, but Need You Tonight definitely yes yeah, it's, it's a great so I understand Hayden wasn't so keen on that song 
Oh wow! As well, Hayden's not here today. It's all about no, no. you, Nick. He better, he better, he better justify it when he gets back on the show. Otherwise, I'm going to, otherwise, I'm going to not keep the seat warm for him. Well, thank you for um, sharing those uh, those that top ten with us. Absolutely, um, cracker of a list there. Um, we'll put it out onto the socials. And uh, now it's time for. Hey, this is Tim Ferriss. Big shout out to Hayden and B. Also, want to say hello to all the listeners and NXS fans. Thanks for listening. I love you, Hayden and B. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. Hi, this is Ella from Middleburg, the Netherlands. You're listening to In Excess, Access All Areas with Hayden and B. And now it's time for the topic of the week. Hello. Hello. Was that a big trip? Talking of trips, Joshua Tree, where you two did their album cover out in here with all these jokes. Can you see a Joshua Tree? There's not one around, but the park is right behind me. Oh, beautiful. And here I am speaking from Joshua Tree here in December. And I wanted to introduce everyone to a good friend of mine, Danny Sabre. And we all know that Danny had worked with Michael, was the last person actually in the studio with Michael. And how I know about Danny was through Michael. When I went to the south of France uh, to stay with Michael one summer, I, he picked me up at the airport and he had his Jeep with him. And he said, you've got to hear this. So he put in this tape and it was a band called Black Grape. So I didn't know anything about it because it's, it was an advanced copy Michael had. I knew it was Sean Ryder from Happy Mondays. Um, he told me that much. And it just, it blew my mind. And that was one of the great things about Michael was that he was ahead of the game more ahead of the game than most people in this business. He, he had, like, the season of Banshees, uh, Kiss Him from each single before anyone heard it, which I thought was great. And we just listened to that tape over and over and over again. So it was kind of pretty much in the stars that one day he'd end up working with Danny. He'd been through a few producers he wasn't really happy with and tried some stuff. And and then when he went, went with the stuff with Danny, there was a long gap in between that, really. Um, and I'd never met Danny and then um, he did the stuff with Danny. And Danny, actually, ironically enough, is still working on the material because his belief in Michael as, a, as, a, as an artist. So welcome to the uh, NXS Access All Areas podcast, Mr. Danny Sabre. How are you, Danny? I'm good. How are you guys? Pretty yeah, good. Yeah, real good. Thank you. Where are you speaking <laughs> from, Danny? I am in Los Angeles, California, in Studio yeah. City, my little... Uh, Man trap. <laughs> I like it. Looks looks quite exciting there. I can see quite a few guitars and uh, a couch. And the black grape poster, <laughs> the black grape poster on the back. So, Danny, I, ju- I just introduced you, you know, th- having met you through, or having met you kind of musically through Michael playing the black grape tape. I wanted to ask you then, um, how did you meet Michael? Well, funny enough, it's not really that sexy of a conversation or how I met him. You know, he approached my managers and said said some demos. But just to pick up real quick on your little story there, because we didn't meet until later. We didn't meet until after no, no. Michael. We never no, no, met no, exactly. And you're the third person to essentially tell me the same story. Uh, Bono told me this story, and then Chris Blackwell told me this story, and now you just reinforced it. Where Bono and Edge had the houses up in the hills above Michael's, right? And Michael was coming up the hill. Initially, it was the uh, Odelay, the Beck record. But then if they heard Black Grape coming up the mountain, because he had that open-top Jeep, I guess. Yes. They had Michael 
coming up the hill, right? Yeah, my thing about Michael was how he was was always ahead of the curve in terms of contemporary music, and he knew what was great. And if anything, the the the, the distance between him, him and the rest of the band was that. Michael was much more sort of forward-thinking and global than, than the rest of the guys in the band. That's not to take anything away from them. They were, they were great musicians, knew what they were doing, but Michael was always on the cutting edge. I mean, he could have been a, an alternative artist, really. Yeah, that's what a front man was supposed to do. So just to, there was it wasn't an accident that Michael was like that because I remember one time we went to like uh, Virgin Records when they used to have those big record stores. They don't have yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah, the mega ones. He probably bought a hundred CDs. And I remember just sitting there, he'd go and put it in, bam, 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 throw it away, yes. put it in, bam, 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 throw it away, put it in, bam, 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 bam. Oh, wait, what's this? So he was always on that mission. I don't it even was. know if he knew what he was actually looking for. And and I understand that. You know, he was always, you know, he was on that mission, you know, and it all was really rooted out of him just wanting to um Explore. Yeah, well, define. Yeah, he was never complacent as an artist, and that's kind of where. And, and all bands, it's not just in excess. I mean, I saw that with the Stones yeah, too. Of course, he's always pushing it out there. Keith kind of, and they're they're the perfect dynamic because they're very well balanced. Meaning, Mick was pushing it out, always trying to find some new way to reinvent or expand the sound of the band. And yeah. Keith is sort of tethered to the earth, so he didn't. And you look at Mick yeah and that's and that's a bit and that's like what you said danny you know the front man does do that he's the front man he's always looking out for what is new and what's what's happening and the um the, the thing with in excess is they had lots of fingers in lots of pies they were funky they were rock you know they had it all going on so they could move around Michael ultimately was a big music fan. I think you'll find most bands are, you know, they're, they're fans of bands and they go and see bands and they want to listen to bands. And, and, and uh, Michael was definitely a big fan. He was a big fan. Of Black. Great. My question, one of my questions to you though, Danny, is uh, the first time you met him, what was it he said to you? What was it he asked you? What was, he, what, what, it, what was it he wanted from you? Well, initially, I mean, it was funny because, and I've said this before, you know, when, it was one of the, like the Black Grape record had been out for a sec. It had just kind of come out. So he was really the first, oh, say like, like, you know, Sean Ryder's more like an anti-rock star. So yeah. he was like sort of the first real rock star, you know, going out to nightclubs, dodging paparazzi, expensive dinners, like that kind of stuff, you know. You know, and I knew about In Excess. They were unavoidable. Right. They were one, you know, huge. But at the same time, I mean, I think I had a couple of girlfriends that were in love with him. So it was always that yeah. sort of that guy. And I remember he <laughs> called me after I had heard the, um, the the stuff he was working on with Andy Gill. He called me. And I mean, it took about 30 seconds for the guy just to win me over on the phone call. Uh-huh. You know, oh, yeah. so what happened was he sent me these, you know, this, this, this batch of songs he had been working on with Andy. And the idea was for me to kind of come in and help expand and define the sound that because yes. he, he he liked what he was doing with Andy. He knew it was good, but he still felt something was missing. So, you know, it was actually very defined. He knew exactly what he was looking for. And the great thing about it was, I, I think it was probably after the first day, maybe the second day we had been together working in the studio. We all went out of course to, to Brown's and, you know, the, did the, did the town. And at one point he just pulled me on the side and he said like, Hey mate, I just want you to know, you know, I'm really happy. This has not only lived up to my expectations, it's gone beyond it. Like, and that was one of the, the great things about Michael. Yeah, my my memory of him going into the studio with you, and this is before I met you, was that he was really content. 
it, it was it was really frustrated. Not frustrated by the people he worked with, but that they couldn't quite define who he was. And I think you were the first person, probably outside of Chris Thomas, that really could define who he was as an artist. So that was a, that was one of the good things that that came out of it, and 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 continues to come out of it today. So what was he like in the studio? How was he as a performer? I would say like. What happens in bands is it becomes like the changing of the seasons, right? Especially if they become really successful. It's like album, tour, album, tour. And when bands become really successful, there's this danger of falling. And this was his big fear to kind of, he always used the word pastiche, but to, to, to fall into that trap of instead of like pushing it forward and, and still trying to grow as an artist, you're trying to maintain what you have. Mm-hmm. Right? That's true. And with Michael, because he's not like a conventional musician. Same with Alice Cooper. They're not going to pick up a guitar and show you what they're, but they can sing you stuff. They have shit in their head. And a lot of times yeah. in this situation with bands, and this happens with, with with most singers, it's like, you know, hey, I got this idea for the guitar. It's like, shut up and you're the singer. I'm the guitar player. So my thing was always like, because it was really just me and him, mm. for the most part, um, when at least from a writing standpoint, when we wrote together, it was liberating for him. Same with Sean Ryder. It's like, cause I came yeah. from working with these rappers and like these rappers would come in with like, okay, we're going to sample this, 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 and this. And the musician in you is like, well, we can't do that. That's in C, that's in E flat. That's a oh, yeah. But they don't want to hear that shit. Yeah. So it's just like, okay, let's try it. Cause I was just happy anybody wanted to work with me, you know, like when I was <laughs> yeah. starting out. So I had already sort of that built into me and I had, been doing remixes where I was taking stuff and building it around vocals. So it wasn't always starting with the music. So I kind of was able to maybe relate to him in a way that. Can well, I, I interject? You know, of course. Can I interject, Nick? Can I? Because yeah. I've just been reading up about you, Danny, that, you know, you, you were playing bass and keyboards and you were mixing. And that was just on Black Grape. Was Black Grape your first major group that you were in? Yeah, so what happened with me was I was in a local band in L.A., and the girl I was in a band with was a band called Issa. She was called Issa June, and we were sort of doing this world beat, industrial, electronic music, but this is like in the late 80s. I mean, I just there's some video of it up on, I just put up, I found it, one of our last shows, and I was running two samplers live, and the sound guys would look at me like, I need four DIs. And, but we had a live drums, bass, full band. So I had always like, I mean, I got a guitar at 13, but then I had like a drum machine and a keyboard at 15. So I had, it all was sort of, I had always yeah. come out of that, you know? And uh cool thing about the situation with her was she had an eight track and I had a sampler and we pulled all our equipment. And when we weren't working together, we had a little clubhouse in the back of her dad's house and I could bring people in and just work on demos. So I started producing anybody that would come. Wow. And, all right. uh, you know, so that's really what set the table for all of that. And yeah, I'm like a multi-instrumentalist. So You are. What you, would you say is your instrument of preference? Or, the, or was it your best at? I wouldn't say I'm best at it. Probably not. But um, I just wanted to be a guitar player. You're a great guitar player. Yeah, because I could tell by the way you arranged and produced that group, the Gulps. The guitar's got a great sound on it. That's cool. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. And I found another thing that sort of just worked out in the stars for me was that I just wanted to be a musician. I just wanted to be a guitar player. Mm-hmm. But then I realized sort of early on, I had a knack for sort of putting stuff together in those days. You know, if you weren't Eddie Van Halen, man, like, you you know, 
you weren't going to survive. There was a lot of amazing guitar players, but yeah. there weren't a lot of guys with samplers who could put tracks together and double on keyboards. And so I just start, sort of naturally gravitated to putting things together and how, and I could tell you. Yeah. Which is perfect for someone like Michael. And you're ahead of your time in, in regard to that. I think that's the kind of madness that Michael did appreciate. Like the multi trying to do everything, yeah. trying tapes in. How much work did you work on with this Adrian Provocateur? And was um, Michael um, influenced by that as well? Because those albums are fantastic. Yeah, well, funny enough. So, like, what ended up happening was he sent the demos over of him and Andy. And then I sort of coordinated a trip to go back to London. And part of that trip, I think I might have been either initially just going to see Michael. Somehow the Agent Provocateur came record came up. And at one point, I, I was able to talk Michael, because I loved working at Real World Studios, Peter Gabriel's studio. Yeah. But it's out in the country in Bath. And Michael wanted no part of it. He's like, oh. man, I got to be in London. I got to be in London. like, he wanted, I'm like, come on, man, let's just, it'll be good for you. Let's go. Oh up my to- God. It would have been brilliant. I passed his ass up and up to, to, to Bath. I think I got him up there for a week before he finally like lost his mind and had to get back to civilization. Oh. And, uh, but it was awesome because it, we, the, the agent, I think at one point I had every room booked in that place. It was crazy. So there was definitely a period where those two things overlapped. Right. Cause for the first you know, five or six months of the release of the Black Rape record, I was in LA. So I would go out every week and buy the enemy and the Melody Maker, but I wasn't in England. I wasn't really feeling it firsthand. Mm-hmm. And I remember Sean called me one night. He's like, mate, you'll never fucking believe he's knocking about with us. And I'm like, <laughs> yo, fucking strummer, mate. He's like, he just fucking discovered oh, E. What you wow. Just discovered E at like 40. And he was like going, so he was at all the shows and stuff. And then that kind of set the table for, for Mike and Joe to work together. And, you know, Michael actually got up and performed with Black Grape at the Brixton Academy, didn't he? Yes, he did. Funny enough, again, I'm, I go back to London. I had just started working with Michael. I had never played live with Black Grape. So they were on the road and I went into like no miss with a rehearsal tape, you know, a cassette of the set. And I literally jammed along to the set a couple for a day. And then I just slotted right in. And that was the first gig I ever did with them, which was terrifying. I had never been in front of an audience more than maybe 300 people in my life. And, uh, but then Sean uh, Sean was so great and generous because I'm like, can Michael play? Can Johnny Marr play? Wow. That's right. Because they both, yeah, that was great. They should have recorded that. Yeah, with Johnny as well. Whoa. You know yeah. what's interesting about that? And then, so cut to like, whatever, 25 years later, I had always had a recording of that. I know the label was recording a lot of our shows. So I had a really good recording, but some fan sent me that video. It's on my YouTube channel. So I went and resunk the recording I had. And obviously there were no phones. So I don't know how they got this footage. They must've snuck in a video wow. camera. Cause it's like up in the, sort of rafters but mm-hmm. and i resunk it up so there's a really cool version of it oh you'll have to give me the link to that one mm. yeah yeah we'll put all that stuff up because there's a killer version of it you know and it's yeah it's michael unfortunately you don't really know john sean forgot that johnny marr was on stage <laughs> <laughs> well i thought that sean Ryder was always very gracious to those people like michael you could tell he was a he was he was Yeah, I think his introduction to Michael was really sweet. You would have thought that he would have been the opposite somehow, you know, coming from that Manchester scene and the the rock thing, but he wasn't. Because that was the thing. Michael called him. He's like, you know, I love the record. He's like, you got to call fucking D, mate. 
Hey, there's a guest on this. Oh, we got a guest. Where's yeah. Mick? Where is Mick? Mickey! Mick! Michael! Hey, yeah. And it's what you want. We just love rock and roll. And let's preach to me. Look how preach to me. Brothers and sisters. Another one who I who I just love is what he is and what he represents and yeah and even the stuff he's done with uh, the Gorillas he's just a great artist. So what was the first track you actually ended up recording with Michael? So what happened was Andy was we were working out of Andy's apartment and it's another good one because I get to London and I'm like okay I'm going to meet Andy Gill you know Gang of Four I'm expecting to go to some cave. <laughs> in South London with like Che Guevara on the walls and you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Get off the train at Tower, Tower, I guess Tower Hill or Tower, whatever, Tower yeah. Bridge. We'll go across the bridge and I come to these flats and they're like, they're fucking amazing. They're right on the river and these modern like architectural digest like things. So I knock on the door and it opens and it's Andy. I was like, hi Andy. What's that smell? It smells incredible. He goes, oh, I've got a bit of lobster stock on the stove. <laughs> so here, I'm thinking I'm going to meet this like power to the people communist. He's like, I met Hugo, you know, Hugo Burnham from the Gang of Four used to be down at Michael's house a lot. And they're very public school boy-ish, mm. you know. Well, those so are always the ones that are like that, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, no, no. It was like Joe Strummer. He was the most radical in the trash. Che Guevara was educated. He was a doctor. He was, it was like, yeah. that's all the way <laughs> But let's not go there. Anyway, <laughs> all right. yes. So, 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 but, okay, if you don't remember the first song, what, what was your first impression when he got behind the mic? Well, I don't know if it was the first song I remembered, but I remember, like, the songs that, that, that song, Get on the Inside, I remember hearing that. I was really into that. Going to get around. days everything was still done to tape you know so people take this all for granted now but like if you listen to the black rape record we're running loops and samples and but it's the live band and the shit was not easy to do then you couldn't move every little thing you wanted to so andy really the first guitar player like to gate guitars which is like that almost like a dj thing he did that in the 80s and the song had that really cool that little gated thing he did and so I love that track. That's the track that sort of got me in on it. And and that might have been, the if it was up to me, that would have been the first one we worked on. Gus Till told me a great story when he was there making the Max Q record, when they did Way of the World. 
and Michael brought a perform like a stage mic, like a Shore or whatever, into the into the mixing room, and he had it plugged in like he was on stage, and he was running around the studio, coming up to people, singing to them. And I think that's a great vocal performance he did there. So I know that he liked that that organic kind of go for the moment kind of vibe. I also saw him when he was recording X, when he was scatting to find out what the lyric was for yeah. for um, disappear for disappear and i could see and that was great so did he have lyric was he lyrically prepared or did it go between getting some music down and then fucking around with the lyrics or did he come with you to you with a lyric sheet how did it work like the great jim brown told me don't think in absolutes like there were no if for yeah. every situation it was all of that and more like but you're right about one thing and all these like bono two things you're really right about that i that <laughs> More than that. (laughs) Michael Hutchins. It's like almost like when you get to work with singers at that level or vocalists or whatever you want to call them, they're almost like they're like sculptors. Like, and I tell this to a lot of young or artists I'm working with now, they want to go in and lay down 20 tracks of vocal. It's like, no. When they get to that level, it's it's like like Mick or Mike, they'll lay down a guide and they might not know what half the words are, but they'll fill those blanks in yet. But it doesn't matter. The performance is here. Is it, yeah, like, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is singing in the control room because that was our thing, you know, because it's coming back through. And Bono likes to lay on the lay down when he sings it with a handheld right. 50 steps. Oh, wow. Dan Lenoir had a studio up in Oxnard called Teatro. And it was an old, like, 70s soft corn, soft corn, soft corn. Soft corn. It was a real huge, like a, like where you'd go see a film and they had taken out most of the seats and they had put these um, Sirwin Vegas around the ceiling, but I didn't know they were there. So Bono's doing a vocal and he's got the handheld mic and he keeps going like this. And and I'm like, what's he pointing at? And Dan's like, no. And he keeps going like this, right? Finally, Dan flicks the switch and like, it turns into like, you know, Wembley. Like it was so loud and it was, but uh, Bono, like he needed to get into it, you know? And I, I told Dan afterward, I go, dude, you know, you would have flunked out of engineering school for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that the, yeah, the beauty about singers and people like Michael is that, is, you know, like I said, I got to watch him doing um, Disappear and you're absolutely right. Whereas he didn't have the lyrics, he was do-do. That's why he kept the do-do, do-do in this, but that's how he did the whole song. But you're right, he had the performance there. He nailed the performance. Always there, even when it isn't. <laughs> the other thing about Michael, he was a poet and he did have a great, fantastic way with words and, and you know, so, so you know, not just as a vocalist, but it's, you know, being a great writer, you know, of lyrics and also being a great singer, it's, a, it's kind of must be, it's a tough thing, really. Now, I, so my other question was, how, when he finished the take, how did he feel? Was he confident about his performance? Was he insecure about it at times? Did you have to beef him up a little bit? There's so much shit to unpack just in that last sentence. Yeah. Like, here's the thing. When we did the last Rockstar, the first thing, you know, it took a long time to get to the point where we're actually making the film. We'll skip all that. Bottom line is we ended up with a hundred hours of all this sort of stock footage, you know, just whatever that had been, we a researcher. And as I was going through it, not only did I like really have a great appreciation for In Excess as a band, you know, and the caliber of consistently excellent records they made, yeah. but then I something like occurred to me when you think about this, Michael's lyrics 
he was singing about like interracial relationship, like heavy shit. Because yeah, it yeah, was yeah, yeah. And dance music. Yeah. I don't think he or even the band in, as a whole really get the credit they deserve for how good the fucking material. Like it was that shit was. You go back. They didn't really make any shitty records. They didn't have any shitty songs. Like everything no, no. was at a certain level. And see, that was the other thing. Like with him at that stage, because like everybody knows the whole Oasis incident. Yeah, which I didn't really get it, you know, like it's I always say like half of me wishes I knew all the shit I know now I could try and transfer. If I was the guy I am now, I probably wouldn't be like because Michael wanted someone young and fresh that got it to work with him, you know, so he didn't want some experience, you know, not that I'm jaded, but some guy that's been in the business 30 years. There's no way around it. You just know shit. You just know. Yeah, yeah. We were at the at the Brit Awards. Because Black Rape was nominated, but I mean, with Liam was at our table the whole time. Then Michael was there, so we were all sort of together. Because you know, because Liam and more Liam than Noel, I think. But you know, they have a lot. Sean's like the Godfather in Manchester. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. And uh, anyway, you know that shit went down, and I don't know if I saw Michael again till the next morning. And I kind of made a little wise, like a joke, like, "Oh yeah, hey, it has been" or something like that. Um, and I looked at him. I go, "Really." I go, dude, come on, man. You can't let that shit bother you. Like, No, he like was you, really affected by it. Oh, it was humiliating was for him. It was public, wasn't it? It wasn't just said. It was said live in public. So his confidence, like, that's probably not the same guy maybe you were hanging out when you guys did uh, Kick or whatever the record album you cover you did. It wasn't yeah. probably the same guy completely, you know, because... No, no, was, it's different. That was the whole point of why we were doing what we were doing. You know, he was trying to define his his sound and and just in the public perception of him you know after all the shit had gone down with all that you know that he was getting way more tabloid coverage and i know it's probably hard for people under a certain age to understand this but in those days and that was his worst it was like become a self-fulfilling prophecy that was his worst nightmare Mm -hmm. to be more famous for being famous then you know people were losing sight of the fact that he was a great fucking singer i agree you know? exactly but he was losing sight of it himself i mean it was a very distinctive period when after he did kick and i've told this story on this website before i was at my house in west hollywood and there was a knock at the door and there's, there's this guy with short hair and glasses on and it was like michael and because you know before this he was the hair and and it was like it was a very conscious decision for him not to be seen as a as a as a rock star he was over that thing that's when he went on to do the max q record and i've often said this he wasn't looking for commercial success with that record he was looking for credibility it didn't bother him they didn't say he was a millionaire by this point it didn't bother him it didn't sell even though it could have sold a lot more than it did it was more a question of him making a creative statement and so i think the great thing about you was he you took him to you were the last person and you took him to that part and i give you a lot of credit for the fact that having known michael he was really happy with what was going on because from max q on through various people he wasn't kind of finding it completely what his niche was and i think you understood him and you were absolutely right it's because you were younger you were experimenting you weren't chris thomas who'd been through the beatles and roxy music and you know was a very studied but great producer you took him into areas that he felt comfortable with, he felt he belonged in. He wasn't just a rock star, he was a musician. But the, with the rock star comes all the other attributes, which are the paparazzi and the girlfriends. And, and I think he got a little bit distracted by all that himself. He wanted to come back to his roots. 
Well, the beauty of being with Danny is there's no there's no band to actually put their two pennies in. It was all Michael. Was, he was able to get it out of his head. That's right. Yes. Yeah, he was very excited about his music. The impression that he was secure. He was insecure. He was moment to moment. There were moments of that, but the vast majority of the time, you know, he was still Michael Hutchins. Like it was, yeah. you know, like I didn't have to talk him into playing with Black Rape. Like he was fucking into that shit. But I never <laughs> like weekend before um, he went back to Australia that last weekend. You know, I I had to like beg and plead. I'm like, come on, man, because we were we were doing this thing at the Viper Room. I'm like, just come up and do one song, man. We've never really got to play. I forgot we did the Brixton thing. I'm like, you know, I never got to be on stage with you. We got to do one song together. We were gonna put a band together. I'm sure with it, me and him and Andy, and we would have put a whole thing together and taken it yeah. out. But then once he got on stage, <laughs> it was like was all the things that make him so great, though, and all the things that made him so um, like in tune, like his sensitivity and his ability. Like he was always like, I think he always saw himself as the underdog. Because I yeah, remember right. after that Viper Room show, and there was some band I had worked with, and the singer guy was there. They were a local band, and they had known me before, like I had had any real big success. So he was, the singer guy was trying to like throw me under the bus in front of Michael. He's like, yeah, Dan, he's really good with the music. He was a British guy. He goes, but he, he doesn't, he's not very good working with singers. And Michael looks at him and goes, well, mate, he's working with me and uh, he's doing a pretty good job. Yeah. You know, so he would always defend. Thank like, you. That was his yeah, it was. Mm. He, he did that. We did that with me with the kit cover when Chris Murphy didn't want it. Michael said, "You know what? I want this is a great cover," and he stood up to Chris Murphy. So he was very loyal in that respect. Mm. When he liked you, he was very loyal. perception do you think between you and in excess the band not with michael but the rest of the guys in the band did you get any feedback from them or or any comments or did you feel any animosity or look the, the funny thing was again my i was so young and naive i'm i, I remember at one point specifically saying to him because he had he's like we had to take a break so they could go do um elegantly wasted yeah the tour and i remember saying to him like well hey man you know if it would make sense you know, I'd be down to work with the band. And he was like, no, no. And, and, but he was very protective about it. He was like, you know, he wasn't like dismissive or he was never condescending or dismissive. Some of the things I, I think, even with the whole Oasis thing, he didn't get mad at me, which he easily could have done. He didn't. He just was like, you know, whatever. He, he never was condescending or dismissive. He just was more protective. Like, no, I don't want to bring you into that situation right now. And yeah, I know he really wanted to keep it separate. Even when I, the, the last rock star came out, you know, I, I, my whole thing is like, first of all, without an excess, nothing I was doing with Michael would mean what it me meant, right? So let's be, let's be real. Like okay. in excess is the reason yeah. Michael Hutchins matters as a solo yeah. artist. You yeah. can debate within the band whose value, you know, but I always, as a record producer, I truly believe this, even like with Black Rape, you know, if you could say, oh, Bez, what does he do? I'll tell you what, if Bez is on, on the couch, <laughs> going like this, 
you know something's right. Yeah. So like everybody has a part to play in that equation. Yes. That's what it adds up to. So if you start like trying to analyze it and say, well, this one doesn't, you know, that's the problem with bands. That's what, that's what happens, you know? Yeah. So I don't have any like animosity or weirdness. I think so. Obviously they would have been a little threatened by me. I'm like the, it's almost like a marriage, you know? And I'm like the young, I'm like the young girl, you know, that just all, you know, but I did go to meet the band when they were in LA. I, I was, they were staying at the sunset marquee and, uh, and they were shooting a video and I remember going down one night to see him but they everyone was together I met all the guys and they were cool yeah that know? was when Paul Boy did the video for everything the stuff you're working on now you 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 said to me recently that you would love if the band were involved in it in some respect tell us about that look there's one song there's one song that could be an in excess song let's just put it like that so I, I mean I'm open to whatever but like you know, that would be like threading the needle. Like, I mean, but I'm open to whatever. I'm down to have any conversation anybody wants to have. There is one song in particular. You've heard it. Yeah. It lend itself. There's room for that, you know, yeah. but half of me is sort of like, well, because I've looked, the one thing I've tried to do in, in, in this, and I think I've done a pretty good job, that, that pre-sale thing, which I personally had nothing to do with just for, and just to put it out there so everybody knows there is a finished record. Nick can attest to that. Yeah, it was a pre-sale thing. I, you know, I was told about it. It was done by the lawyer. We will make that right at some point because this will eventually come out. So you want to involve in in excess with it? Oh yeah, yeah. I've tried to do everything, keep it a creatively up and artistically up to the standard that Michael set. Because again, there's no shitty in excess records. No, it just isn't. Do what to protect what he would want as a friend, as a mate. So, you know, half of me would be like, yeah, but half of me would be like, I don't know if he would have really wanted that. But at the same time, all bets are off. He's not here. So I'm open to having whatever conversations. We, we jumped ahead a little bit here because I think people listening to this won't, won't understand the fact that you are still working on this record. Yeah. It's not, you've got a finished record, but you're still working on it. And you've had this great idea about inviting guests singers to come on and do a duet with Michael. And the fact is that, is that the presence of Michael and a new record would help that. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, no no end. So what you've been doing is, and what I've heard is fantastic. It's, it's like Michael just went in the studio almost a year ago and started recording again because it's got all that kind of contemporary feeling to it, but it's still Michael. So so tell us, tell us why you decided to keep it going for so long and be so dedicated to it. Well, A, I mean, and just so for the record, like, I, I initially I was asked to do this, like, because what, what the story goes is, so we, we have the, the V2 album or the Michael Hutchins record. That was pretty much done. He he had heard everything. I mean, we mixed it after he passed, but he he knew where everything was at. If he had lived, you know, we were in this process now where all the Andy's material was like, it was mixed. It was done. Me and him had started writing and we had, you know, I, I can't remember now, three, four. So we were in this process every time he came to LA, we would write, we would write. So we had started and we were starting to find, I mean, it was all really cool shit. It was, it was, um, um, a breathe and, and possibilities and uh baby it's all right like those that was one okay let's write a song okay we wrote possibilities let's write a song we wrote breathe it wasn't like we wrote five songs to get one like we were on a vibe yeah and, uh, we would have continued that probably got one or two more 
And then he wouldn't have been there, which would have been a huge difference because those were demo vocals that I had to use, you know, and, and, but for all intents and purposes, we could stand on that record, but it came out and then we all realized like there was no one to promote it, you know, Mm -hmm. and outside of Australia, it still hasn't really ever seen the light of day. So then cut to like, I don't know, eight years later, I get a call from David Edwards, who at the time was sort of managing the day to day. Turns out there were like 30 songs and that's all the stuff when he was making the rounds. Right. Yeah. Two inch tape. So like just even to hear him was a pretty big undertaking. So we got everything digitized. It was all in London or I think it was all in Paris. Yes. Was. And then I'm like, all right, I need to go through this. So we started kind of going through the stuff. Like immediately I'm like, okay, there's some good stuff here. Let's let's take a couple of these and and see what we got. So I, I like finished a couple of songs and we realized, okay. We probably got, if not a full album's worth of stuff, maybe we can repackage it with the V2 stuff, even the Max Q, who knows, and package this whole thing, which will lead to the NXS thing and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But we knew, it was like, well, if we're just going to put another record out, we need something to promote it. Like, And no documentaries had been done yet. Nothing had been done other than a stupid behind the music. And I think an e-Hollywood story. Then we went on this odyssey of, oh, let's go. We'll just make a movie. No big deal. You know, I can produce a movie. I'm a record producer. But by this point, though, Danny, Dave Edwards had nothing to do with NXS anymore. He was exclusively working for the Michael Hutchins estate, wasn't he? I don't know, because he definitely produced that TV show. So at he one did, point, but they, they all fell out, and then he was They just- all fell out, yeah. Hang on, exactly. hang on, hang on, hang on. Dave Edwards started to do um, the um, the rock star, but yeah. he, he didn't, in the end, he, he he was let go. So what's this? David Edwards was still part of Michael's estate. I don't think that's right either. No, it is right. It's absolutely right. Because he approached, Dave Edwards approached me about doing the documentary about Michael. Uh, okay. but, no, but Dave Edwards approached me about doing a movie about Michael Hutchins, which, which I did. We wrote a script. It was called Slide Away. trying to move things forward so we can get this music out so the fans can hear it. But the bottom line is this, everyone has to understand something. It took 10 years to get that movie made. The the one I, you know, right away thing was a, was a biopic. Yeah. Documentary. And we went through, I know you were, we were talking, I don't know if we were talking to you about, I know me and you had conversations about it, but David Lee, Mark Pellington, I mean, uh, Julian Temple, that's how we, you know, we we got Michael a, 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 an admin deal through this publisher. I'm with my music sales, took some money, got the music for, for Julian to hire a researcher. So we got pretty far down the road with Julian. He ultimately didn't want to make the film because I guess he's friends with Geldof, whatever. The bottom line is this. Nothing is easy in Michael Hutchins' world. And, and, no, and what the no. fans realize is everything is not as it seems. 
And when all the dust settles, the one thing I know, and I know for a fact, because I know all the details, I would never have anything to do with anything that in the grand scheme of things was detrimental to Michael, of Mike, what Michael would have wanted or his, or his legacy. Because the whole point of this, in my mind, has always been to allow Michael to sort of take his place in the pantheon of greats. I mean, he deserves to be recognized as one of the all-time great frontmans. Yeah. Let's just be fair. Let's be real here. He didn't do himself any favors. Whatever happened, happened. I don't think he committed suicide. I just think yeah. he got stuck in a moment, as Bono said. So we'll yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Danny, well, how I see it is that you want to give him his voice back. Well, right. And part of that is, you know, in excess getting in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All these things add up to that. But people have to be real. I mean, I was like, I mean, as bad as it is that in excess isn't in. When I, I made a record with Alice Cooper in 2009, he wasn't in. That's like preposterous because no, no. he's, I mean, Alice Cooper is the cornerstone of a whole genre. Yeah, of music. No, no, yeah. There's a lot of politics involved, all those type of things. But yeah. the reality is, I think if in excess, which, I mean, they're running out of people. They're going to have to put them in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's a fair few that haven't got in yet. Well, if it was, if I had a magic wand. They'd be in already. <laughs> And now it could happen because certain people are out of the equation. Everything to be whole, meaning like Michael gets his recognition for being one of the greats. And excess gets their recognition for being the great band they were. And everything gets put like sort of and the dust settles and everybody can take their place in the historical context. Where they should be. Yes. Without any of this. Right. And this is from this whole thing. It's like, look, it doesn't matter to me if In Excess gets in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, you would think they would want to be in it. And again, yeah, yeah, not uh-huh. negative about the guys, but there's some pieces right now, you know, and why is everybody not supporting everybody? I never said anything negative about, um, what's your buddy, the video director, Lowenstein. Richard Lowenstein, yeah. said anything negative about the band. I've never said anything negative about anybody because what is it? what does it contribute to in the greater good? Well, I agree with you. But it has come from the other side. We didn't wait to throw that documentary under the bus. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a it good was. fucking documentary. We got nominated yeah. for a logo. We, we made it under the fucking yoke of like the repressive yoke of Australian corporate television. Like we did a pretty good job. And it was always a means to an end, meaning the idea was always to make that film so we could hold the music back, recut it, and then release it worldwide with the record. And we knew when we did the international cut, we could do what we wanted. We could get rid of that. When the night Michael died, these I mean, there was a lot of stuff in there, but I stand behind the guy who got that movie made ultimately is a guy named Mark Llewellyn. And that dude moved mountains like he was fucking. I think we were all a bit shocked that um, Colin Diamond was involved. That's that's the the main thing. Too much. Too much. He was in too much. Finish this, Nick. I love fans. Without the fans, none of this means anything. But they're they're emotional. They're passionate. Things are not what they seem. All right, they're, they're just not. And when the dust settles, well, it was all done with good intentions. It was all done with good intentions because it was meant to benefit Tiger. That was the whole idea of it, wasn't it? 
Yeah, you um, know, yeah. everything's to benefit Tiger ultimately, isn't it? Because yes. Tiger, Tiger is, is is the recipient of she's Michael's all that's left. She's the only one left. Yeah, but unfortunately, she doesn't get that. But um, I, I, maybe she will eventually. But but so, what's the next step then, Danny? Well, I mean, I know you've got certain rights that you've got to get. Okay, you don't have to go into it. I can't talk about any of that because no. it would undermine. I mean, I mean, half of me wanted to come on, like I said, and maybe play a little. It's just not gonna. It's, it's not best gonna, not to at this point. I think maybe, maybe. Yeah, it's nothing to be gained because look, I want the fans to be able to experience this record as close to how Michael might have wanted it as possible, and it mm-hmm. all has to be. I'm dealing in in decades here, like, yeah. like meaning it's decades, right? So if we can't yeah. do it right. It can't. It, there's no point in doing it because the whole point again is to somehow allow Michael's legacy to lay in some sort of bed that it deserves. It's like the guy deserves better. This is Sheila from Birmingham, Alabama. Hey, this is Susan from Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, this is Mikey from Montreal, Canada. This is Suzanne from Los Angeles, California, and that's a wrap. So yeah, that was the interview that both Bridget and I did with Danny Saber. What did you say? I thought it was great. I mean, I thought he was very compassionate and and very passionate about his music and and his legacy he wants to leave for Michael. Yes, he was. He was very good, wasn't he? I really enjoyed it. I can't wait to um, share next week's as well. But this week was really awesome that, you know, he just took us back in time. And I felt like I was in that studio with Michael and him, actually, when yeah. he was talking about some of the, the, the things that they were doing. Yeah. And the bit of Black Grape and how it all began, really, with um, yeah, it began. Sean. Yeah. Yeah, and that was all, and you know that that kind of stuck in my mind as being a memory I had in the south of France, and and I didn't realize that Danny Saber had done that, or even that Michael was going to be working. With. I don't think Michael knew that it was going to be working with him, but but as you can tell from the uh, interview, that Danny really would believed in Michael and believed in Michael's um, legacy and believed that Michael should be there, and he believes that NXS should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm. You know. Um, and I think that's a good that's a good uh, place to leave it from his point of view. So if we, I know you're very um, up on getting this thing to happen, and Danny's given it some positive feedback on that. But yeah, it's great great interview. Well done. Yeah, no, well done, you two. I, I'd like to um, also encourage everybody to try and find the Black Grape with Michael on YouTube. Um, he hasn't had that many um, likes and and views, so I would uh, stress to go and have a look at that because it's actually really good how it Danny's is, yeah. taken the music and married it up with the uh, the footage that the fam did yeah. really far away as well because you it see him pan, he pan him pan out on that as well. So that's got Johnny Ma from the Johnny Ma from the Smiths there too, and and it was a Brixham Academy. And the good thing about Sean Ryder, and I always liked him because he was such a character, <laughs> is that he was very like, yeah, Michael, as we know, we've talked about the Oasis thing. Yeah, and Sean Ryder to Oasis was like a kind of a god. But Sean treated Michael with the utmost respect and mm. and as a like a rock and roll icon, which is what Oasis should have done, really. I think it, it, that that was a big deal to Michael, yeah, that, that he was. got that much respect. Yeah. You know? yeah. Off air, you mentioned something about um, possibilities that uh, Danny yeah. did with um, Michael um, and that there's a cover version of it. Who's that by? Well, there is. Well, I know that Danny is one of the songs that Danny 
would like to do uh, to get Michael to, to sing a duet with is, is possibly possibilities. He would like to bring a female part into that song because it's a great song. But I was asked well, a few years ago, six years ago, to do a video for a, for an actor that was on um, Neighbours called Dan O'Connor. And he made his record and he'd done a cover version of Possibilities. And he did, it was a good version of it too. And I don't know what ever happened to Dan. He was the nicest guy. And I made the video like Collateral, that film Collateral with uh, Tom Cruise, where he plays an assassin. All right. I had Dan O'Connor in the back of a taxi. He was going to go on a, on a hit to someone because I wanted to make it darker. But it's available if you guys, you can probably post a link of it on YouTube. But yeah, oh, cool. it was a... Yeah, it's a good. It's a great song, and it, it was a good. It was a good cover version. Oh, good. well, shall we play out on it then, Nick? Yeah, because there's a lot of cover. You, you're very into, into the cover versions of NXS and everything. This is one of the cover versions, of Michael. Yes, we should play it to Bridget. It's been really good fun doing this. Got to thank Hayden. I'm nowhere near as good as Hayden, but you know <laughs> what? It, I learned from the best. It, after his, I'm sure he's going to be exhausted after his trip around the world. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. It's not an easy job to do. No, no, it isn't easy. Uh, no, no, all respect to Hayden. He does an amazing yes. job and keeps me uh, keeps me going because I'm a little bit off yeah. the beat. So I didn't know how this was going to work. We both was being a bit crazy, but it's oh, no. well, you kept, you, well, you kept me on. You kept me on. You kept me on the, on track. So so that was good. All right. Well, we miss you, Hayden. Please come back. Oh, it's a goodbye from me, Nick. And it's a goodbye from B. Bye, everybody. Bye. How my life's changed I know nothing About the people that I touched Heard a story It sounded easy If you don't care Then you're lying through your teeth I was shook up Intoxicated Drank the juices Of the possibilities I'm so alive If you told me Love was perfect
heard a story It sounded easy And got a new skin And I'm lying through my teeth I was shook up Intoxicated I drank the juices Of the possibilities The possibilities This is the Dutchie, and you've been listening to In Excess, Access All Areas with Hayden and B.